And I want to remind you, as I do welcome you, uh, that we will respond to today's sermon by taking the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we do invite any baptized believer in good standing with their church to receive the Lord's Supper with us today. Um, so the only way that we fence that is with those under church discipline. Otherwise, we don't. So that's kind of where it's at after the sermon to respond to the sermon. I want to also give a disclaimer right out of the gate before we get into the text today, which is going to be Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. So I invite you to turn there with me now so you're ready. Revelation 4, 1 to 11. And I'll be following very much the same splits that Jim Hamilton writes of in his Preaching the Word commentary. I cannot improve upon it, so I will just tell you his points. It's two of them, verses 1 to 6, the one seated on the throne, and then verses 6 to 11, the worship of the one seated on the throne. So we're going to describe the one seated on the throne, and then we're going to discuss the worship of the one seated on the throne. Pretty simple points, straightforwardly. One to six, one to six is a description and then we're going to describe the actual worship of the one seated on the throne, which would be 6 to 11. Just before I do that, I want to offer another disclaimer. Uh, there are so many people in this church that are an inspiration to me uh, because of the behind-the-scenes work that they do so that our worship service can come to you as free from distraction as is plausible without being a sort of program-driven church trying to make everything spicy and, and highfalutin. Uh, we're not rich. <laughs> We don't have unlimited resources, but these folks use what they have to try to prevent distractions to your worship. And so far, I've been blessed. Have you been blessed by the songs and the labor that these folks put in, hours and days and nights to bring to you a digital bulletin and so on? There is one problem that they have not been able to fix with, despite all their efforts every week, and that is this surge in the sound system that goes at some random point in the service. So if we could just kind of take it like champs, uh, I, I don't think there's any way to stop it right now. They keep working on it, working on it, and they're even going to do some extensive work this week to try to fix it, and next week, and the next week. But in the meantime, I think it's just sort of like a, like a providential wake-up call that this isn't supposed to be a well-polished service where everything goes off just right. Is your life a well-polished life where everything just goes off real, just right? It's not, is it? So we need to be uh, real on the one hand. We also need to bring a reverential attitude to worship on the other. So there's two things in tension there. We want to be raw and real, but we don't want to be sappy, and we don't want to be irreverent. We are not really simply trying to connect horizontally. When we come in here, what we're trying to do is connect vertically, aren't we? And there's no text in the Bible, aside from perhaps 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with Paul's vision, there's no text in the Bible that is a ratified vision of the throne room of heaven like the text we're about to read about today. So without further ado, let's read it. Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated at, on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are like 
which, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And now the text that goes with the second point. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, as we sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and King, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Imagine this throne room scene that we just read about. It's an eyewitness testimony to the one seated on the throne. We need this text today after having preached through and read through Revelation 2 and 3. We need it as much as the original seven churches in Asia Minor need it. For we struggle with the same kinds of struggles that the seven churches in Asia Minor did. Perhaps a review is in order. One of the churches struggled with a kind of cold orthodoxy, where they'd held the line with faithful preaching and beliefs, but they were indifferent to one another. They had lost their first love. We, from time to time, need to be rekindled in our affections for one another, don't we? We do. Another church had let false teachers bleed into the teaching ministry of the church. And Lord Jesus woke them up and said, you can't tolerate that kind of teaching. And from time to time, we go along to get along. And like those churches mentioned in Revelation 2, we have a tendency to not only allow a decline and downgrade into false teaching, but also we begin to tolerate the kind of activities that leadership produces when it allows for and even teaches false teaching. And that's what happened with the Jezebels. It's what happened with the sexual immorality and the church at Thyatira. Perhaps from time to time we struggle with needing to get strong again. And that's good medicine for us when we need confronted in our sin and set back on the right track by the merciful and firm hand of God. Sometimes we're like the church at Sardis. Sometimes we are just a little too cozy with the world. We slide into nominalism. And in our nominal Christianity, we need a a wake-up call. We need to realize that authentic Christian faith is countercultural. And at some level, if there's no wave-making with the world, we lose our witness to the world because the things that we stand for and the one that we worship is antithetical to the prince of this age. Sometimes we're just like the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia. We just, we're living a life, but we're just beat down. We just need encouragement. Just like those churches, persevere. You think you have little power? But actually, in me, you're powerful people. You're going to co-reign with me in eternity. 
Or maybe we're like the church we just talked about last week, the church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea, in fact, was a church that had lost its way. It had the outward appearance of things, but Jesus described them as a sick church, a church that, that made him nauseous. They were lukewarm, like the poor water supply that the Laodiceans had. They were self-sufficient. They were not spirit-sufficient. And that subtle, subtle difference was one that Jesus had to speak directly to them about, not different than how he spoke to the self-assured Pharisees and Sadducees during his earthly ministry. Jesus speaks to the late first century church and to us in that manner. Let's be spirit-assured, not self-assured. And from that, we pivot into this vision of the throne room of heaven that God gave the Apostle John when he was imprisoned on that island, that rock quarry prison island of Patmos, to the south of these churches in Asia Minor. And he writes this letter that the, that the church courier would carry to the churches so that they could read it. But he writes it from himself, a downtrodden and oppressed situation as a prisoner, as an old man, likely, at this point. John the Apostle, who outlives all the other apostles, now as an old man gets this pleasure on the Lord's Day, the same day that we're gathered here, of being in the Spirit, as chapter 1 says, of now being in the Spirit again, and of seeing glorious things. And this is why we need this text today. Before I get into preaching the two parts and then applying it to our lives, and hopefully the Lord uses that, this is why we need it. We need it because the grind of life in a Genesis 3 fallen world, the grind of life just grinds us down to the point that we think, begin to think and feel like the world around us. And we need our eyes lifted from what's before us every Sunday to see where this thing is heading. And, and what's going to be evident to everybody when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because that's where it's heading. Though we look like we have little power, this is infinitely more important. Hear me, friends. This is infinitely more important than whoever's playing in that game tonight. This is infinitely more important. And I'm not making shots about whether or not you should watch the game. I'm indifferent to whether or not you love sports. I don't care. That's up to you. But I'm telling you this. This is infinitely more important than a sporting event. The throne room of heaven rejoices over a sinner that repents and in many ways trivializes with minor footnotes in history sporting events, victories, and defeats. You know, the old saying is, who care, does God care who wins the game? Well, because He's sovereign over everything, I guess He cares who wins the game. But it's kind of the wrong question. What you should be asking yourself is, based on the way the Bible reads, what's God put a premium on? And I can tell you right now, that without blinking an eye, this He puts a premium on. This gathering is infinitely important. It's why the enemy attacks it so readily. I mean, how many hurdles do you have to get over just to get here? And I'm, just trying to, I'm not just trying to build you up falsely. How many hurdles, I can tell you from my own family, just to get to the gathering of the saints? And no shade to those of you gathering online because there's slick roads outside and there's all kinds of, of health reasons and concerns people are shut in. I'm not throwing shade. I'm just saying, when you make an effort to get to the in-person gathering, you're making an effort, aren't you? I mean, I can get to work easier when I work construction than to get to this place. I mean, the enemy doesn't want me here. But stuff happens here that just can't be done with the disparate church. You're on mission all week long, but when you come here, there's something that the Lord has specially ordained and provided 
as means of grace to get you through the next week, to get you to the next task, to get you through the next discouragement. A little flock be encouraged this morning. You need this text as much as the original seven churches needed this text. You need this church, this text today, church. The whole point of this text is to show us that right now God is on the throne being worshipped and praised as he rightly deserves. Right now. In this moment, he is on the throne being worshipped and praised as he rightly deserves. Once he enters the heavenly throne room, it's as though John starts with the throne and works his way out in concentric circles. In verses 1 through 6 describes it. And then it's though he goes back through the throne to the throne and describes what is happening nearest the throne and works out from there again in verses 6 through 11. This is the vision of the heavenly throne room. First, let's take a look, as I indicated from the onset, at the one seated on the throne. Let's ponder that based on this text. It says in verse 1 again, let's look at it. After this I stood, I looked, and behold, rather, a door standing open in heaven, an open door. He's allowed to see. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood open in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now pause, and let's ponder verse 2 for a moment. Throne occurs 13 times in chapter 4, and 17 and 4 and 5 combined. At least 11 of the times are referring to God's throne. So this is not referencing a piece of furniture. This isn't like the big seat New Harmony where you can get the picture with the three people sitting on it because it's so wide on the bottom. That's, that's not what it's designed to do. It's, it's imagery to reflect to you as a symbol that God's rule is absolute. He's absolutely sovereign. His authority knows no limits. His authority knows no limits. Now lift your thoughts from yourself for a moment and consider all the tensions that you're dealing with in the world this week, in your workplaces, in your families, the frustrations, and consider for a self for a moment that yourself is not in control of these happenings. When you share the gospel with a friend, you're not in control of whether or not they respond. You're in control of whether or not you're obedient to share. If your boss is a knucklehead, that authority is not yours to fix. And that authority is minuscule in comparison to the sovereign rule of God. This text is shouting to the believers in the midst of their downtroddenness that nothing compares to the grandeur and glory of God. Nothing. He is absolutely sovereign over everything. Jonah 2 says that he is sovereign over salvation. It says that salvation belongs to him. He owns the entire thing. Let's not take any of that authority back. It's not yours to take anyway. This throne that is a key word in this chapter is a symbol of the sovereign rule of our God and King. Verse 3 says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
and around the throne, we'll just pause to say precious jewels, right, for a moment, and lots of imagery from the Old Testament. In fact, Ezekiel 1, as well as Isaiah 6 and Daniel 7, is heavily in view in chapters 4 and 5. You might note that and go back and read it. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. And we might just pause there and ask the obvious question, well, who are these 24 elders that are seated as these concentric circles go out? Uh, Well, these 24 elders, there's imagery of our thoughts in our minds back to 2 Chronicles, and there's thoughts to the elders mentioned in the Old Testament. There's thoughts to elders in the New Testament. Certainly, we have uh, elders in churches today that are supposed to lead churches faithfully and are called to give an account for the leadership. We read about that in the New Testament. Uh, I kind of tend to lean toward thinking of these as representative of all of God's people. And in that way, tying together the testaments with the 12 patriarchs and then the 12 apostles. So you might think of it that way and study that out yourself. But let's imagine that as a sort of a intertestamental binding of the people of God throughout the ages being represented in this, this what's going to be a worship fest and being described as the throne room of God in all of His might. Verse 4 again. There were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, symbolizing purity. Golden crowns on their heads. Hold on to that word crown. That's going to be important in a minute. It says in verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Just, just pause and think of the imagery of, of supernatural phenomenon completely and utterly in control of our God. Look at His authority here with lightning and thunder. Look at His authority in in heaven and and imagine for a moment what His authority is going to look like when it comes to bear on every single person on the day of the Lord. He's not authority-less right now. It's simply that in this period that we live in, God's people are identified by what they don't evidently see. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, evidence of things hoped for. I mean, it's plain to see in the creation that God is real, right? I mean, very few that are gathered here, unless you're a seeker gathered here, and we welcome you, but I'm just going to tell you the deck stacked against you. We don't think that we're sort of a, like a, a blob of atoms or some kind of a mishmash of something that wasn't intelligently designed. We believe that God created us. We affirm the verse that's within this text. And we affirm it with living faith that we were created and our very existence existed in the mind of God before the actual finger, finger, fingertips created from the dust all that you see, including humanity. We don't think for a moment that we just sort of accidentally got here. We don't think that, that God was without a purpose or that we, in, for that matter, we don't think that we're without a purpose because God made us. Our existence is not only dependent on God, in some secondary way, but in a primary way, our existence is because God decided it to be so. If you're struggling with self-worth, stop looking to yourself for worth and ponder the truth that I just laid out for you. 
your existence is because he decided it was important for you to exist. Your existence is because he decided it was important for you to exist. Do you see why you cannot fix all downtroddenness without God? The fix for our downtroddenness is not found within ourselves, but outside of ourselves, and then within ourselves as He comes to bear on us and regenerates our cold, dead hearts. Your crisis of meaning fundamentally is resolved in your understanding of why you exist. Your existence was God's decision before it reached actuality. You're here because God wills it. Your significance is found in your creation as in the very image of your Creator, God. Do you see that you're important? Now, derivatively, of course, as a created being, not as the Creator, but do you see where your significance lies? This is important. This text is begging you to locate your significance in who decided you would exist and not in your self-feelings. That's why chapter 4 is as much about creation as chapter 5 is about redemption. In fact, the entire narrative arc of the Bible, the gospel message itself is located in chapters 4 and 5. Creation, the fall of man, the redemption of Christ, and the ultimate conquest, the consummation of Christ's kingdom. It's all located right here in 4 and 5. It's going to be beautiful to see as well as we go through Revelation. We'll never get tired of the recasting of the how time is to be spent between the first and second coming of Christ. It never gets old. It shouldn't get old. It does, just like the Lord's day doesn't get old. William Hendrickson says it like this. He said, Our tribulations are employed by our Lord as an instrument for our own spiritual advancement. We see earth God's footstool. Let us not forget as we read Revelation 4, His throne. To be sure, we say... That to those who love God, all things work together for good. Let us really believe it. Sometimes we speak and act as if the control of events and the destiny of the world rested in the hands of us, of men, and of the rulers in this age, instead of in the hands of God Almighty. How could Stephen face his martyrdom in Acts 7 the way that he did if his vision was in the hands of men? How could he, like Jesus, pray for his detractors and his killers if his eyes were in the ruling authority of men? He had this by faith vision of what was to come. And that's the only thing that is going to help us feel important, called, meaningful in this life is we need a Stephen-like vision of the throne room of heaven Every single Lord's Day. Every time. 
I need it. The control of events and the destiny of the world does not rest in the hands of men. It rests in the hands of your God. That we can say, so be it, amen to, right? As we peer into heaven with John, we see that in the midst of our trials and tribulations, we can gaze toward the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one seated on the throne. This, this, uh, this picture, this word picture that's described for us in Revelation 4 is well, well articulated with a diagram that uh, now passed away theologian and commentator William Hendrickson draws out in his commentary, More Than Conquerors, and he draws out seven circles. Do you have the ability to show that picture? I don't know how easy it will be to see of God on His throne it's not going to work too well, is it? Is it too narrow? Yeah, perhaps we'll put it on our site. But if, if you're able to blog it, blob it out a little bit, it shows seven circles. I'm going to describe them with words to you because I think it's so very helpful. You can imagine circles going out. The vision consists of a one single picture to teach us this main lesson that the center is the throne with steps leading up to it. And in the center of the throne sits the Father. The innermost circle represents the sparkling white diamond. Four, three. And circle two, the sardius. Circle three, the rainbow, the emerald rainbow. Circle four, the four living ones, or the cherubim, as we learn from Ezekiel. Chapter four, verse six of Revelation tells us these are, the, these, are the, these living ones, and we understand they're cherubim. Circle five, going further, is the 24 thrones with their elders. Circle six is the many angels. And circle seven, all the other creatures of the entire universe. We'll get another shot at this next week because those last two circles are taught about in chapter five, and I'm only teaching chapter four today. So we see these, these concentric circles is a wonderful way to think of it and look at it. So the seven lamps as the sea of glass are also before the throne, chapter four, verses four, five, and six says, and the lamb stands between the throne and the living ones. And the 24 elders on the other side. But the Lamb later in chapter 5 advances to the throne and now is seated on it with the Father. And we find that in Revelation 22.1. So the throne rules over all. That's, that's the point. But I want this imagery to kind of, as you begin to think about it, in, in, in a manner that accentuates what is main and middle. And that's what chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 uh, really does. When the Apostle John describes this, he's describing the radiance of God, what's coming off of Him. Another way of saying it is, he's, he's attempting to describe that God's glorious, God's glory. It's an indescribable glory, Exodus tells us, but it's an attempt to describe His glory, the radiant wonder of God. So we've looked at this throne. Now let's consider the worship that is the right response to the one seated on the throne. Let's glance again at chapter 4, verse 6. After it says the seven spirits of God, which we've already learned is indicative of the Spirit Himself, we, indeed we see the triune God in Revelation 1, 4, and 5, and it's again on display here. We're worshiping God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit when we worship. And so that is, this, that is the, what is being described with the seven spirits of God in verse 5. Now in verse 6, before the throne, this sea of glass-like crystal. Now we pivot to our second point at the end of verse 6. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now pausing after verse 6, just simply to say that if you read in the Old Testament, you're going to find this imagery. This is not new. John knew his Bible. John isn't just making stuff up and riffing. 
Like this is a man that knew his Bible, and you should too. Like this should be an application for you from this text. John had the resources to see this vision and know how to interpret it because he knew the, the, the Old Testament. He knew the Bible. So let's not get bogged down in our Bible reading plans. Let's keep on plowing through, and especially in light of here how much of the major prophets are, are assumed in these readings. If I took the time to go back to the, the hundreds of allusions, if not direct references in Revelation to the prophets, we'd wind up preaching Ezekiel and Daniel instead of preaching Revelation. So I can't really do that, but I just suffice to say, every time you plow through the historical Bible reading plan or the McShane plan or the genre plan or whatever you do straight through, every time you plow through the nearly three pages for every one that is the Old Testament in ratio to the New Testament, every time you plow through, you're not just getting through it. You're understanding what the Apostle John understood to be able to provide a context for the nouns and verbs used in Revelation. It's, it's a climactic book. It's the prophecy of all prophecies. But it doesn't make what came before it ancillary. It pulls it all together. And you need that. And sometimes we're prima donnas. I mean, we, we want to run before we walk. And we want to walk before we crawl. We need it all. We, we really do need the grammar of the Bible. I need it. Don't you need it? I need to refresh on Ezekiel. My family, during family worship, we've been listening to Ezekiel and reading Ezekiel. And I just got to tell you, I've had to go back and kind of scratch my head and be, well, what exactly was he talking about there? It's caused me to dig. He said, well, pastor, you're supposed to know all this stuff. Well, newsflash, I'm blemished like you are. <laughs> we're in the same boat here. We're all trying to, we're like, as one said, one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. We're all going back to the Word and trying to figure it out and how it fits together. But that's what's being assumed here. And when we talk about these four living creatures, we get a lot of our cues for interpretation, indeed, from the Old Testament. Now, if you look again at verse, I believe it's verse 7, we want to see now. Let me find my spot here. There we are. Verse number 7. It says, the first living creature, like a lion, so using, using like or as, we're doing a simile here, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. And so these are descriptive terms revealing something, some kind of an attribute of our ruler. So it, it, it like a lion, like an ox. Third living creature, with the face of man. Interesting. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. So these, these descriptions are telling us things about our ruler. They're telling us things that we need to know about him. And when we read this, what we need to do is to consider the, the, the vision of our Lord to see everything. You know, there's nothing that the Lord doesn't see like an eagle soars over everything. Uh, we go fishing in Arkansas every year, and there's an eagle's nest on the White River where we fish. And we just, we, it's majestic to see that, that bald eagle flying around. It's kind of a, the, our own country is kind of known for the eagle, isn't it? I mean, where we live, the American eagle, it's a big deal. Imagine an eagle in flight soaring over and seeing all and swiftly moving. Or imagine the shrewdness of a lion, right? We've seen those lion videos, they're shrewd. Imagine the raw strength and service of an ox. These things bring images to mind. That's, that's the point. For those of you that love to read works of fiction, because you like to be 
communicated to symbolically. God has genres in the Bible that scratches that itch. Apocalyptic literature scratches that itch. It doesn't mean that this is some sort of fanciful allegory that isn't communicating truth. All that it means is is that God understands our need to be communicated with in common terms, and He helps us to see what we need to see for our worship through things that we can understand, like animals that we see, birds that we watch. I think that's important as we lean into this second point, the worship of the one seated on the throne. That's, that's what's needed as a response to a right vision of who God is and where He is. His glory is already all around us. It will be undeniable on the day of Christ's return. But it's already there, and we, we see it as the people of God, don't we? We see it. God's glory is the reason for the response of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God's glory is the reason for that response. I was uh, reading, or reading something that John Piper wrote. He was writing about God's glory. And here's what he said. He said, defining the glory of God is utterly impossible. He said, I say that because glory is more like beauty than the word, say, basketball. If someone says they've never heard of a basketball, they don't know what a basketball is. And so if you say define a basketball, then it wouldn't be hard for you to do. You just use your hands and you'd say, well, it's a round thing made of leather and rubber. It's about nine or ten inches in diameter. You blow it up, you inflate it so it's pretty hard, and you can bounce it like this, and you can throw it to people, and you can run while you're bouncing it, and then there's a hoop at the end. It used to be a basket. It's a goal. You try to throw that thing through the hoop, and that's why it's called basketball. And Piper describes, he says, that, that that's, not, that's not the way that you describe glory. You could spot a basketball with that description. You can't do that for something that's beautiful. You have to appreciate it for what it is. There are some words in our vocabulary that we can communicate with, not because we can say them, but because we can see them, Piper says. We can point. If we pointed enough things together, we can say, oh, that's it. That's beautiful. That's the thing. That's beautiful. And we might be able to have a very common sense of beauty, but to try to put beauty into your own words, it's very, very difficult. And here's what he arrives at, and he's really talking about this in the context of Isaiah 6, which our service leader read earlier in the service. He's really talking about it in the context of Isaiah 6. He says, it's the same thing with the word glory. He says, holy spells glory. Holy spells glory. Holiness is the right response from somebody that has a sense of God's glory. Holiness is what we say of Him because He's utterly holy, unblemished. And holiness is what He guides us to pursue as His people, thus the set-apart or sanctified people, His people. So when we, to, to put it into application terms, when we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come, Really, not just when we sing that, but when we sing congregationally together, we need to understand that that is designed to be our opportunity to express to God in the presence of one another and to any unbelievers that wander into our gatherings and need Christ. It's our opportunity to express that 
we sense the emanating glory of God all around us, and we can't fully put words on it like it's some sort of a basketball to be easily described. But what we know is he's absolutely unblemished, and as we pursue him, we describe him in all of his glory as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Hebrew, it's kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. It's crescendoing. It's the trifecta to build us up to this punch with all three words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What's going on with the prophet Isaiah that's being picked up here by John the Apostle as he's witnessing the throne room of heaven is a description of the glory of God to the best of our ability with the limited tools that we have. And and notice in verse 9 how this is really hammered out. And whenever the living creatures give glory, give glory and honor and thanks, aren't you thankful for your Lord? Glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Then the 24 elders fall down then before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. Now just pause right there and stop for a second and, and, and understand the right response to understanding that God is glorious. It's worship. When we, when we come together and we worship, if you're like me in this way, sometimes it's ho-hum. We just sort of get through it. And I get that. That's life. But in our better moments, what we need to realize is that our worship is joining the song of the people that have the most vivid picture of the God that we're singing to that have the best understanding of who He is. And when we sing heartfelt worship to God, we are testifying to the fact that that throne room is real and relevant to what's going on right here, right now. That's what we're doing. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So we have to sing the Word. When we gather and we sing, it's not just that thing we get to to get to the sermon. Or if you really like music, it's that thing I do because I really like music and I just tolerate the sermon. That's not what it is. It's all part of how God has set up the economy of corporate worship to get the word across to us so we begin to have a greater sense of His imminent presence, of, of, of the transcendent God, of His radiance, of His glory. Because it just can't be encapsulated in a basketball definition or any other definition. Holy, holy, holy. We say, so when we say it's just this, it's this wonderful thing to think of it that way, it's... We're getting closer and closer to understanding where we are in the universe. And a multitude of downtroddenness begins to get treated with the medicine of the very Spirit of God. Now, it says in, uh, in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they, it says something here. It says they cast their crowns, cast their crowns before the throne. Uh, John Mark Hall is the lead singer of the now popularized praise and worship band Casting Crowns. And if you listen to him talk about how they came up with the band name, they were in church studying Revelation 4, and this is how they came up with their band name. Uh, what's symbolized here is everything that we earn, if you want to say that, with regard to crowns and achievements, or, or just maybe making it a little bit more base, everything that we have, imagine your greatest crown, I don't know, whatever you got. Your greatest crown, your greatest crowning achievements. Probably more about rewards in heaven, but the greatest crown. Imagine for a second what it's going to be worth to you when you're in the presence of God. Here's my wallet. 
Uh, here's, my, here's my new iPhone. Psh, you know what I mean? Uh, here's my preferences. Uh, psh, there's that new roof I put on the house. I, mean, it's, I don't know. You know here's, the, here's the advancement I got at work. There's the sport I mastered before I got old. There's the control I had. There's the management I conquered. There's the, there's the relocation I got because I did such a good job with this and that. And there's the this and that. I mean, just think, it's just, that's the right response to God's glory, to, to what he is to us as his people. It's wonderful, really. It's wonderful. It's freeing. Nothing to the cross that we bring. We just cling to him. We just cling to him. And that's enough. And they, they get it. They cast their crowns before the throne. They say, we had to memorize this verse for evangelism class in seminary. Uh, we're, I think I memorized a different translation. But worthy are you, our Lord and King, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's a, it is a wonderful verse to memorize. I would urge you to do the same. It's a wonderful verse to memorize. Ponder the truths of that verse for just a moment before we conclude. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Well, what's the reason he's worthy? Well, in, this, in the parlance of this context, he's the creator. Oftentimes when I preach funerals, I will choose a text about the creation. Because I think it gets fundamental to where the gospel story gets started. We weren't just randomly put here. God intelligently put us here for a reason. And our existence belongs to him. We exist because of his will. So important. So a few summary thoughts in conclusion. Beauty unimaginable describes what's to come for the believer. Unimaginable beauty describes what's to come for the believer. Number two, power on a scale no empire has ever wielded describes what will be seen on the day of the Lord. Power on a scale no empire has ever wielded. Number three, God's glory is everywhere. You're the ones that realize it, but His glory is everywhere. Number four, the right response to God's glory is twofold. It is the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of heartfelt worship, both individually and corporately as the people of God. Number five, you are not random at all whatsoever. You were intelligently designed by a Creator who thought you in His mind before fashioning you with His fingertips. Number six, you are not alone. There are unseen heavenly hosts believing the same things you believe, affirming the same things you affirm. And there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't think they need to. Earth may be the Lord's footstool, but heaven is his throne, and the day is coming soon when the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in, and all the creation will know what you know right now and what you sang this morning. He is worthy. Amen. At this time, we're going to respond to the preached word by receiving the Lord's Supper. Our worship team has prepared a song that is so wonderful for while we take the Lord's Supper the ponder. And so let me say a few things before they begin. If you find the elements in front of you in the pew, there's a, it's a little bit, the top piece is a little bit hard to get separated, but that's how you get to the wafer. And so you want to take it out first and then perhaps peel back the bottom. 
on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed. He took bread, symbolized here by this wafer, and he shared it with his followers, and he said to them, Take, this is my body broken for you. And so, as we do this, we remember his body broken so that we could be forgiven of our sins. On that same night, Jesus shared the cup with his disciples as that which represented his bloodshed for the propitiation of sins. And as we share today, we remember that he who knew no sin at all became sin for us. And to remember 
to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the King. Around the table of the King.